0: It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of September 2nd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This week I make good on a promise. I promised a report on Vista after I'd been using it for a while. Well, I've been using it for a while now. About 90 days, give or take. The shortest summary I can give you is that Microsoft hasn't struck out with Vista. But they haven't hit a home run either. Your next computer probably will come with Vista, and that's okay. But you probably don't want to upgrade an existing computer to Vista. I did that. Some days I absolutely love Vista. Some days I loathe it. I like the look, I like the feel, but one problem is that it's almost always thrashing the hard drive. I try to play music from iTunes, and iTunes skips and jumps and sounds bad. That's because Vista is always using the disk for something. I tried turning off some of the indexing features, but it's not clear that it's the indexing features that are keeping the drives so busy. In fact, it seems that that's not the case. Whatever it is, it appears to be something that came with Vista, because I could run iTunes without a problem at all on this same machine under XP. Now, under normal performance, I see a little bit of disk activity. And you can see the same thing I see. If you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, you'll see the resource monitor showing some disk activity. That's normal. There's usually some disk activity. Something's going on. Resource overview shows the CPU chugging along at under 25% use most of the time. And that's about where it should be. Memory hard faults. A hard fault sounds threatening, but it really is part of the normal operation of a computer. A hard fault occurs when Windows, or an application running under Windows, needs to write something to memory, and there's no longer any available memory. It has to swap it out to disk. That's normal, as long as it stays under, oh, about a 100 hard faults per second. But then, suddenly, without warning, the CPU starts effectively gasping. The chart shows the CPU hitting a peak, falling into a valley, another peak, a valley, a peak, a valley, a peak, a valley. That doesn't seem reasonable, particularly when I'm not really doing much with the computer. And the disk drive reaches saturation point regularly, suddenly, and without me doing anything at all. I'm not using the machine. It's just sitting there. Sometimes when this happens, After a while, the result is a system crash. Not even a blue screen of death, just a complete black screen crash. So what's causing the problem? I wish I knew. I have literally spent hours researching it. I've not found any believable answer. I've seen theories from some people who say that it's the result of some of Windows' new indexing services. But I mentioned I've already tried turning those off, and it doesn't fix anything. There are some people who blame a number of other things. I haven't been able to prove or disprove those either. And as for Microsoft, well, they've been silent on the topic. Now, the concept of indexing everything on a hard drive is reasonable, particularly for people who don't bother to store files in any kind of logical manner. If I have a Word file that belongs with the Futzbinder project, it's going to be in the Futzbinder directory. If I have an Excel file that belongs with the FUTZBinder project, yep, in the FUTZBinder directory. How about an InDesign file that belongs to FUTZBinder? Yep, it's gonna be in the FUTZBinder directory. So I already know where to find the files that belong to the FUTZBinder project. Indexing is not a real benefit to me, and the relentless, never-ending disk thrashing could be an annoyance and a hindrance. It may not be, I'm not sure. The 3D graphical interface is absolutely cool. I love the transparency. I love the look of this operating system. But that takes an enormous amount of system resources to run it. I allowed the full 3D interface to be active on my account, but I finally turned off some of the more cumbersome components for my account. And for those times that I need a system that's fast instead of pretty, I have a user setup that eliminates all of the graphical user interface niceties. Now, what bothers me is this Apple has a similar graphical user interface, but it doesn't seem to have the same performance degradation issues. With Vista, the current choices seem to be pretty but slow, not quite as pretty but a lot faster, and really ugly but fast. The difference, I think, is that Apple does all of that fancy graphical footwork in hardware on the video card. Microsoft, for reasons known only to the folks in Redmond, layers all of the cool stuff on top of the Windows graphical device interface. That means if you have one of the basic editions of Vista, you won't even see any of the cool 3D effects. And if you have one of the advanced Vista versions, you're going to see the effects but your system's going to take a performance hit because of it. So does all this 3D and transparency stuff make the system easier to use? That's an open question. Some people might say yes. Others would say no. It doesn't make any difference. It does look better. I think it's cool to have those transparent components, and it's neat the way they grow and shrink, sparkle and shine. They can make the overall look and feel seem friendlier but it is slower and unfortunately in some cases way slower now keep in mind that Moore's law will eventually push performance to the point where it can support all this processing that will happen in oh, probably the next year or two and that's one of the reasons it makes a lot of sense to put off a Vista upgrade until you buy your next computer and By the way, Intel co-founder Gordon Moore, credited with Moore's Law, actually said it was the number of transistors that could be put on a chip that would double every 18 months, not the speed. Now, there's a correlation, and in the early days of computing, there was a very direct correlation. More transistors, more speed. It doesn't always work out that way these days. In fact, we may be reaching the end of Moore's Law, and I know that's been predicted a number of times before, We may be reaching the end of Moore's Law because raw speed improvements aren't keeping pace with the addition of transistors on the CPU. Newer computers aren't necessarily faster. They do handle more data, come with more memory, have larger hard drives, and present information in a more attractive way. They're also hotter and noisier, and they require a lot more fans for cooling. If you have already upgraded to Vista, you probably recognize some of the things I've talked about. If not, I have to say, what's your hurry? And there is going to be a Vista service pack. Finally, Microsoft, this week, made some rumbling noises about when we'll have the Vista service pack number one. January 2008, most likely. Not that Vista needs to be fixed, of course. I mean, everybody should enjoy that constant disk activity and the inability to really listen to audio or view video or use other applications when Vista decides it needs to use 100% of the CPU cycles and 100% of the disk bandwidth. On Microsoft's highly controlled corporate blog, this week there was a message that said, now is the time and the time is now. Okay, that was clever. Let's talk about Windows Vista Service Pack 1 the blog entry consisted of a lot of blather that was probably generated in conjunction with Microsoft's public relations agency so sadly much of the blather was just that let's see if we can cut to the chase it says that SP1 will contain changes focused on addressing specific reliability and performance issues we have identified via customer feedback supporting new types of hardware and adding support for several emerging standards now they did mention in there performance issues. Maybe that disk thrashing is something they'll take care of. I'll have to wait till January to find out. If I can stand it that long. The message on Microsoft's blog says we didn't design Service Pack 1 as a vehicle for releasing new features. However, some existing components do gain enhanced functionality in SP1. Absolutely agree. SP1 should not contain new features. Corel tried that in the 1980s and 1990s, just piling feature atop feature. The company eventually learned, and unfortunately a bit too late, that customers are really concerned about reliability. They don't want an application that does wonderful things if it can't operate properly when doing all of the mundane necessary things. Same is true for operating systems. If the operating system can't keep applications running Something needs to be fixed. We don't need new features, so thank you, Microsoft, for realizing the obvious. Please use SP1 to make Vista stop consuming all available resources on a regular basis. Do that, and I'll be happy. A beta release of SP1 will be out in the next few weeks, and I am absolutely positively not going to install it. You should also avoid it. The full SP1 will be available probably in January, and... That's the time when you ought to start looking at Service Pack 1. So now you think I'm a Microsoft hater. Well, no, I'm not. Vista is an operating system I wanted to like, and in fact, I do like it a lot. I wanted to like it without reservation, but I have to like it with reservations. In some cases, a lot of reservations. Windows Explorer, for example, can't seem to remember much of anything. I'm always getting Explorer views that are inappropriate for the task at hand in directories or folders, if you wish, where I have previously used different settings. There is no reasonable excuse for that. But still, the overall look and feel of Vista is good. Granted, I have had to turn off some of the cooler features because they turn my 3 gigahertz computer with 2 gigabytes of RAM into a snail... But someday, someday when computers run at 20 gigahertz and come with 100 gigabytes of RAM, all standard, Vista is going to fly. I have been using Outlook 2007, part of the Office 2007 suite. Outlook 2007 looks quite a bit like previous versions. New face, a few new features, actually a lot of new features. It has an email application, a calendar, task list, contact manager. All the things you'd expect Outlook to have. An integrated search feature makes finding what you're looking for easier. And it can now even search inside email attachments. That's a nice addition. The interface has been redesigned, but not entirely remade. In other words, you will recognize it for what it is, and you won't have to really relearn how to use it. Microsoft gives a nod to power users with what they call the fluent user interface to speed operations. Color categories replace flags, and they're used throughout more parts of the program. Previewing attachments is a lot easier. That's a good idea, I think, but it might be a security threat, too. Previews have always been problematic, and although the feature is useful for users, it's also something the bad guys always examine to discover ways to launch exploits. Use that with care. If you use Outlook with an Exchange server, you'll be able to create and subscribe to shared calendars. That's been the case with Exchange servers for quite a while. But Outlook 2007 adds Internet calendars. That makes it possible to share information via the Internet. Publishing an Internet calendar to Microsoft Office Online requires using credentials that you get from Microsoft Passport. So you continue to be woven into Microsoft's Big Web. Outlook now allows users to send text messages to mobile devices and to receive text and images from those mobile devices. There is support for RSS feeds. There are improved anti-spam controls. The junk email filter, which has been around since Outlook 2003, will keep most but not all spams out of your inbox. And some new anti-phishing features kick in to warn about malicious content within messages. But if you're a power user of Outlook 2003, you're going to find some things missing. Outlook 2003 users will notice that Windows NetMeeting is no longer there. It's no longer the technology that Microsoft uses. It's been replaced by Microsoft Office Live Meeting. You also won't find a personal address book file if you install a new version. If you upgrade, you will find the PAB file. But this is no longer really supported. You can continue to use it if you want. But the file structure doesn't support Unicode, and it can't be used on multiple computers, so you'll lose some of the nicer features of Outlook if you insist on using the old file format. If you use ACT or Schedule Plus, those are no longer supported in Outlook 2007. ACT data can be imported into the Outlook Business Contact Manager. Schedule Plus no longer supported at all. Those are just a few of the additions, deletions, and changes in the latest version of Outlook. If you want more information, make sure you check the Microsoft Office website. Criminals continue to get smarter. That means potential victims also have to get smarter. Have you done anything recently that might embarrass you if video of the event showed up on YouTube? That's apparently the premise of some of the recent spams I've seen. Here's a message that came to me from PG.com. That's actually Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. It certainly didn't come from there. I don't know anybody who works at Procter & Gamble. And the link doesn't go to Procter & Gamble. It does claim to go to YouTube, but it really goes to an IP address. So the message says, Oh my God, what are you doing, man? This video views is all over the net. See for yourself. And then there's a link. Well, the link actually goes to an IP address that belongs to Wide Open West. It's probably some clueless schmo in Illinois who managed to allow his computer to be compromised. And if you follow that link, your computer will be compromised. When you follow one of these links, you will be asked to run an executable file that will attempt to take over your computer so that your computer can be used to enroll other computers in a botnet. It will also run several JavaScript functions designed to exploit known weaknesses. The Q4 roll-up exploit, as it's called, a package of about a dozen encrypted exploits, is the active agent. The spams and their earlier confirmation spams all are courtesy of the Storm botnet that's been around for the better part of half a year. Depending on who you talk to, this botnet that is believed to originate in Russia includes from 250,000 to 10 million compromised computers. The original storm worm appeared in January and at that time infected thousands of computers. Since then, those computers have recruited others by fooling people into clicking links. And it's clever. It keeps morphing into new and different content on a regular basis. At this point, the safest course is simply not to open any message from someone you don't know. And not to click on any link in any message, even if you believe the link came from someone you do know. If you want to visit the link, type it into your browser's address field. And if the URL turns out to be an IP address, forget it. Nobody is going to send you an IP address. If you get an IP address, that's almost certainly an indication that you don't want to go there. And if you do make a mistake and click... And you find that something is unexpectedly asking you to download, run, or install a file. Run, definitely run as far and fast as you can. Don't install it. Here's this week's stupid spam of the week. And you're going to have to go to the website to see this one. It's so stupid I can't even talk about it. And where to start? Is it the spelling? Approved spelling (laughs) APPRUVED. The hideous colors? Uh, maybe it's the inane message or incorrect from address, the punctuation, the URL. It's just plain stupid. This seems to be one of my surly weeks, so in place of nerdly news, we have surly news. Having spent more than a few years in marketing, communications, advertising, and public relations, I have empathy for those who are involved in MarCom, advertising, and PR. But not when they do stupid things. You may be wondering what I consider to be a stupid thing. Well, here's one of them. Unlike a lot of people, I still have a landline at the house. I don't have caller ID there, so I essentially have to answer any call that comes in. But I have my cell phone with me most of the time, use it for a lot of my calls. It's always nearby, and it offers caller ID. Well, I've registered my phone's number with the National Do Not Call Registry, as if that would make any difference, because I don't really care to take marketing calls that I have to pay for. They're a waste of my time and a waste of my money. Smart marketers will understand that and will avoid my number. But some try a subterfuge. For example, when the display shows the incoming call as blank or even worse, shows the number as a series of nines, I'm going to ignore the call. If a marketer blocks caller ID, no display other than call, that's annoying, but possibly ethical. But if you program your outbound calls to display a non-existent number, you are a crook. I'll never answer that call. Here's something else to be surly about. John Morrell of the San Jose Mercury News, in an article called So, by terms of service, you mean like a bull services a cow? Describes the odd case of Christopher Knight. Knight ran for the Rockingham County, North Carolina Board of Education last fall. And at that time, Knight produced three local commercials. In one of them, the Death Star destroyed a schoolhouse while Knight appeared as a Jedi Knight. Get it? Knight. Knight. Clever. Well, Knight decided to post the commercials to YouTube. Okay. Then Viacom picked up the videos without asking. Picked up the videos and used them on a show called Web Junk 2.0 on VH1. Well, Knight thought that was kind of cool. So he posted a video of what appeared on VH1. Bad idea. Although Knight had produced the original video, and Viacom had used it without asking permission. YouTube removed Knight's video because Viacom complained that Knight had used its copyrighted materials. Knight says, Viacom took a video that I had made for nonprofit purpose and without trying to acquire my permission used it, in a for-profit broadcast. And then when I made a YouTube clip of what they did with my material, they charged me with copyright infringement and had YouTube pull the clip. Folks, this is what we say down here in the South is bass-ackwards. Bass-ackwards, indeed. And probably one of the clearest examples of why... Many people think today's copyright laws were written by bottom-feeding creeps who want to steal what's yours and then charge you for creating it. As Murrell wrote in the Mercury News, this comes down to what's yours is yours, but we can do anything with it we want. I think I've mentioned previously that I have an XM radio. Well, I received a question about satellite radio this week and explained that I have an XM unit that records. I can use it at home with an antenna that sits in a window. window has to face the southern sky. Or I can use it in the car. Typically, I record the Bob Edwards show in the morning, listen to it when I'm in the gym in the afternoon. The service itself is fine. It's the customer support that's horrid. Now, if you ever have to report a problem to XM, it's going to take them at least three days to respond, if they respond at all. A few weeks ago, the Bob Edwards show didn't appear on my radio for several days at a time. The data showed that it had recorded, but there was no audio. XM blamed the problem on the radio. Delphi, the manufacturer of the radio, blamed the problem on XM. One of the XM technicians told me that the data with the current day's date displayed even though there was no audio because the Bob Edwards show was no longer on at 8 a.m., but the radio remembered that I used to record it then. Yeah, this guy actually did claim to be an XM technician. Well, I checked the channel that the Bob Edwards Show is on and found that it was silent when I listened live. It wasn't recording. It wasn't there live either. Another round of calls ensued. XM said the problem was with the radio. Delphi said the problem was with XM, but... Delphi would be really happy to sell me a brand new radio. Mine was 14 months old, so of course it was not covered by warranty any longer. Well, then XM suddenly discovered the problem was with the channel, and the audio mysteriously reappeared for a few days. It was then gone for a couple of days. As of the end of this past week, it was back again. I've asked XM what caused the problem with the channel. Why it took them more than a week to figure out that there was a problem with the channel, and what steps they might be planning to take to avoid a recurrence of that problem with the channel. I don't know the answer to any of those questions, not yet, I mean it was only three days ago that I asked, and with the current Labor Day holiday on us, I probably won't hear anything until well into September, if they reply at all. Yes, I do like the XM service. For long distance driving, it's wonderful, but it's not perfect. And as for customer service, it's certainly not wonderful. Well, enough of this surliness. Go out and enjoy your day. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of September 2nd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and if you want to, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.